This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, women driving change, rewarding careers in construction, and travel tips. But we begin with the race against the COVID-19 variants. The Delta variant has been making headlines lately and for all the wrong reasons. And a newly named variant, Lambda, is now on our radar here in Canada. So do we consider ourselves properly protected against present and emerging mutations of the virus if we're fully vaccinated? Are we going to face more and more new variants in the future? And will mask wearing become a permanent feature in our lives to help further protect us from the unknown? Dr. Richard Gould is York Region's Associate Medical Officer of Health. He joins us now on the feed. Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. So let's discuss the Delta variant. The pace at which we're being vaccinated in this country is the effort to try to outpace the Delta variant at this point, stay one step ahead of it through vaccinations? It's for the uh, to keep ahead of the Delta variant and any other variants that uh, uh, may arise into the future, and also by having a highly immunized uh, population um, with less transmission of the virus, there's less opportunity for new variants to appear. Uh, and we also had to remember, too, that uh, we may be far, far ahead, further ahead of, of vaccination than other countries in the developing world, etc. So we had to make sure that we're protected from uh, importation of any uh, uh, variants that might be coming from elsewhere. And the Delta variant has made itself apparent here in Canada and right in our own backyard. Recently, uh, there's been an outbreak at a long-term care facility in Burlington. So it is here. It is definitely here. Uh, it is uh, more prevalent in some areas of the province than others. Um, uh, we've had a few cases. Uh, I think we've had up to about 72, 70 cases that are uh, been reported to us. It's probably more just because of the way they're doing the screening. But, you know, our case counts are going down. That's the key thing. Um, and um, interestingly enough, where Delta variants have been present, say, like in a long-term care facility, outbreak or whatever, um, the residents are, are well protected. They, they, they may have an infection, a mild infection, but we're not seeing, seeing the severe illnesses. And that's typical of what we know about how the vaccine works against the variants. Out of Israel, recently reporting a drop in Pfizer's uh, ability and its efficacy to help protect people against the Delta variant. It's now, and you know, we really shouldn't concentrate on numbers, we the public, not you, the medical profession, but we the public, but I'm going to. 64% effective now, and that's protecting people from catching, I guess, the Delta variant, but it is still 93% effective in keeping people out of hospital. That's important. That is extremely important, and that is certainly the information we have, that the vaccines are highly effective in terms of preventing severe illness and hospitalization, um, especially with two doses. Um, so we, we're moving forward quickly to uh, ensure that people have got at least their first dose and then are then getting their second dose as quickly as possible, because that does, as you say, provide very good protection against more serious illness. Some areas in the southern United States are in a race against time. There's been some reluctance on the part of some people in the U.S., in the southern part, to be vaccinated, and the Delta variant numbers are on the rise. Does that not sort of seem like a very clear answer to an issue? Get vaccinated and protect yourself against the variant, against COVID-19. It is. It's very important. I mean, not only is it important for one, you know, an individual to protect their health, uh, but they're also protecting those who, for whatever reason, don't respond as well to uh, um, the vaccine. Say somebody's highly immunosuppressed, uh, who may be a, a, a close family member or whatever, so it protects them as well. So not only does it protect you, but it protects others around you. Still around the world, Australia's recovery plan is in jeopardy right now as it tries to contain the Delta variant. So what do we know about that? And when we hear information like that, how should that sit with people like me who, you know, I, again, I'm not a member of the medical profession. I just read the headlines. 
Well, it it comes down to really getting high immunization rates, as high as we can possibly get, uh, and to try and uh, address areas uh, like groups in terms of age or areas where there's uh, lower levels of immunization and getting to them. Um, So, again, the more evenly distributed the the vaccine is across the the population and the higher the rates uh, are, the better we are uh, prepared to be able to prevent any serious illness um, occurring due to the variants. And, and the higher, the, as I mentioned earlier, the higher the immunization rate, uh, the lower the transmission becomes. And then if, you, if there's not a lot of transmission of the virus, the virus doesn't have an opportunity to mutate. Uh, so it's important to drive down those, those cases through the, uh, the immunization efforts. So there's a new word in our vocabulary, the mainstream vocabulary, and it is lambda. And that is uh, the the newly identified, at least here in Canada, we're, we're hearing about it for the first time, uh, the new variant. But it first appeared in August of 2020 in Peru and right now is wreaking havoc in South America. Dr. Gould, do you think it's just a matter of time before its full impact is felt here? Well, we'll have to determine a little bit more about... Um you know, the effectiveness of the vaccines, et cetera, and uh, whether or not it actually will um, appear to any great extent within North America. We'll we'll obviously keep an eye on that. Um, There is ongoing monitoring of the variants to see whether or not they're present uh, or not and then track to see what's going on. And internationally, there's a lot of work going on where they look at the vaccine effectiveness against the the variants. Um, I think what we're seeing is that... um, COVID-19, it tends to have some variants that occur, some mutations that occur from time to time. Um, so it'll be really important to get those vaccination rates up. And the other thing that's happening is, again, um, you know, the vaccine manufacturers and others are looking very carefully at the protection that's provided by the vaccines and determining whether or not uh, they need to make any alterations to the content of the vaccines uh, or whether or not boosters might be necessary, et cetera. So they're all looking at that uh, to protect us. And uh, so far, though, uh, the current vaccines seem to be working very well. You know, as you describe that, it makes me think of the flu shot. Uh, the flu shot each year is designed to protect against, I guess, the most predominant strain of the flu from the year prior, if I'm not mistaken. Might that be a right. similar way of approaching the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, that's to be determined. Um, they're obviously very different viruses. They mutate, change in different ways. Um, so far, it looks like it you know, it's a little bit different. So we probably, or we may not need to go to the extent of having, say, annual boosters like we do with uh, uh, influenza vaccine. Uh, but it's possible that protection will decrease over a period of time. We don't know how long that may be, at which point then a booster may be necessary. And that, that wouldn't be surprising um, to need perhaps boosters in the future, because that's typical of a lot of different uh, vaccine-preventable illnesses where we we have boosters that are provided at various ages. Uh, but that's all to be determined and we obviously will respond to any need uh, that is that we identify to do that. Do you know whether the Delta variant and this new Lambda variant, are, are they more easily transmitted between young people or from young person to an adult or vice versa? You know, we look at that area sort of under 12 years of age that at this point around the world, there are question marks about what to uh, inject them with and whether they should have... Uh, COVID-19 vaccines at all. Are they at risk, unvaccinated, when it comes to these new variants? We don't have a lot of information specifically about those age groups. Um, generally, from what we've seen so far, in terms of the uh, the, 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 uh, the COVID strains that we've, we've seen so far, is that children, especially younger children, seem to be less effective in terms of severe illness. I mean, they still can have severe illness, but it's far less common. Um, and they seem a little less likely to transmit the, the infection to others. Whether or not that'll change um, with the, the Delta or other variants, we're not 100% sure. Uh, 
there is actually work going on now um, with the manufacturers to provide vaccines for ages two and above, uh, and we may see those available in the fall. Uh, we're still remaining tuned to that. Uh, and if that's the case, then obviously um, that will also be helpful because if there is any concern about transmission from younger kids to others, um, having them immunized as well will be beneficial. So here's a very simple question. Vaccinations, yes. The vaccine, yes, in terms of protecting people from from really serious illness when it comes to COVID-19. And it brings up the question now, what about mask wearing? So many places, you know, around our nation and around the world are looking at finally eliminating the use of masks in public places and indoors. Is that not uh, something that might be rethought as a result of the variants? The transmission of COVID-19 in whatever form it takes, it seems to be droplets. And if you wear a mask, that might prevent the transmission. Is that something that do you think is going to be reinstated or kept in place, mask wearing? Well, it's currently in place now uh, with indoor spaces particularly. So uh, whether that changes, um, that remains to be seen. Both uh, We follow what the directions are coming from the Public Health Agency of Canada as well as the Ontario Ministry of Health uh, and, of course, international information that those agencies are looking at. And it will be determined to what extent do we continue to promote mask wearing um, uh, and in what kind of circumstances. It might not be quite as general as now, but there might be certain places where, say, there is very crowded, etc. would you wear a mask in that situation? We don't know for sure whether that's the case, but right now the recommendations are to continue the mask wearing uh, as we've been uh, recommending for a while now, following those uh, public health recommendations. And then as we get better evidence and more confident about the evidence and the guidelines around mask wearing, etc., may change. Good point. And in other words, TBA. So, Dr. Gould, let's now talk about York Region's vaccine rollout. And it's been fantastic and thorough and effective. What are we talking about now, this weekend, in terms of the percentage of the population that has either had one or both shots? Well, we're making very good progress. Um, For those who are 12 plus, those who are eligible to receive the vaccine, almost 80% uh, of the York Region population has received uh, one dose. And at this point, about 52% have received both doses. Um, So that's where we're at at the moment. And um, we're seeing quite a bit of uh, interest and uptake uh, in both first and second doses. And what is your best advice to everyone listening right now, that includes me, when it comes to trying to stay one step ahead of the Delta variant, the Lambda variant, the variants that are emerging? Well, the key uh, step to take is if you haven't had your vaccine yet, get your first dose as soon as you can. Uh, and if once you've had your second dose, make sure that you uh, get your second dose as soon as you're, well, everybody's eligible, but as soon as you're eligible in terms of time uh, to get that second dose. Uh, and that's really important. Get those two doses in place, uh, and you're going to be well protected against the, back, uh, the, virus, <laughs> the virus as well as uh, you and the people around you. Dr. Richard Gould, York Region's Associate Medical Officer of Health, thank you for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. After the break, the Pandemic Stories exhibit. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. So if you're dreaming about finally booking a vacation, there are a few new rules to remember. Tina Cortez with the reminders. Elliot Silverstein is the Director of Government Relations for Orion Travel Insurance. Welcome to the feed, Elliot. 
Thank you for having me. After almost a year and a half of travel restrictions due to the pandemic, fully vaccinated Canadians may be thinking about booking vacations once again. Travel will certainly be different from before, won't it? It certainly will. There's going to be a lot more restrictions and a lot more rules, and it's good for people to be aware of what the future may hold for them. Okay, so what do they need to know when booking and when traveling in terms of COVID testing and vaccination documentation? So really what it comes down to going forward is, you know, really um, highlighting the importance of travel insurance and making sure you have things in order because your destination may have specific rules and requirements in order for you to travel. So it's really important, not just at the time of booking, but also in your preparation prior to your departure to understand what the rules are in your destination and making sure you're fully compliant so that if you are fully vaccinated, making sure you're downloading the government website, uh, the, the app, the Arrive Can app to make sure you have all your information in there so that you can also return to Canada safely. But it's, it's, it's a two-part approach, really understanding what the rules are in terms of where you're headed to and the rules coming back into Canada as well. And how do we find out those rules of where we're headed to? So really what it comes down to is looking at the the, uh, the country or the state of, of, of destination, really understanding what the rules are, because one of the challenges we're facing right now is that things are very fluid. So what is the rule today may not be the rule tomorrow, but also if things um, do potentially worsen in a particular area, they may scale things back. So it's really important not just to do your research at the outset, but it's also making sure you do your research right before your departures to make sure that you are fully aware of what's out there so that you are protecting yourself um, as well as protecting your travel. Now, what is the process of COVID testing before you leave Canada? So there are some different rules that are out there. So again, it's important to look at where your where your, your destination is and what the requirements are. Um, coming back into Canada, there are going to be some requirements as well in terms of making sure that you have your vaccines uh, logged with uh, the Arrive Can app as well as making sure that you've done the necessary uh, testing in advance. So making sure you have all your pieces uh, in hand, making sure you've got everything up to date is uh, is ready to go. So make sure you do the testing ahead of time, that you've got the, the negative test, and that you can come back into Canada, um, but also checking because, again, it can vary from uh, place to place about what the requirements are heading into a particular destination. So I guess travelers are also looking then, then at additional fees when, when booking and when preparing to travel. It is possible. I mean, again, you know, we are, we are in a very interesting state as people are really eager to um, to begin traveling again. So some, some may choose short distances, some may choose uh, further distances, but really what it comes down to is making sure you're taking all the precautions ahead of time. So making sure you're fully vaccinated, get everything in there so you have your full coverage depending on your travel insurance provider. Uh, but, but at the same time, also making sure you've got your travel insurance in hand, making sure your passport is up to date because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where your passport may be uh, uh, coming soon uh, to expire. You want to make sure that you're, you're, uh, if it's coming due soon, take care of that now so that you have all that information available and uh, you've got everything packed and ready to go for when you do travel. So uh, I would assume then that medical travel insurance is more important than ever before? It really is because again, you know, when you when you're going to a, a different country, when you're when you're heading to a different part of the world, um, you know, you don't know what the situation may hold while you're there. So making sure you've got the the insurance coverage there, making sure that you've got it all in hand before you leave, you know, you leave the province is is, is vital because if you do run into a situation, whether it be COVID related or otherwise, you want to make sure that your insurance is going to be there to cover you and protect you uh, both at your destination and if necessary to get you back home. So really, you know, a lot of Canadians do it right now, but I think there's going to be a greater interest in there because of the the heightened risk that we've seen over the last 18 months. Now, you've talked about some of the tips to remember before we travel. What about, you know, some of the things that we need to remember, at least in this day, in terms of what to pack, including perhaps cleaning supplies? You know, it really is depending on whether you're, you're, you're traveling by car or by plane, but making sure that you are packing accordingly for what you can. So obviously, if you're flying, there are going to be size requirements of what you can pack, but packing extra face masks, having the, the hand wipes, the travel, uh, the travel size supplies and that end, having some snacks and water that you may you know, take for granted that may not be available. If you can pack certain things, um, it would be great to, to have handy because, again, you know, we are still at this time under a level three travel advisory. So it is still a very unique time in our, in our traveling world. So we want to make sure people are packing ahead of time, making sure they're, they're prepared for their trips, um, but also staying safe throughout. Now, pre-pandemic, when we were booking our vacations, we would often go online. 
Do you suggest that perhaps we deal with someone one-on-one when booking going forward? When, when you when you book with a, a direct contact with a travel agent, uh, uh, um, somebody that that is that is uh, registered and licensed as a as a travel agent, um, you're getting that that white glove treatment. You're making sure that things are in in motion. At, at the same time, when you when you book with a travel agent or, or or a travel professional, it also gives you that ability to make sure that they're on top of things if things change. Because what we've seen through the pandemic is that when we had to shut down very quickly, those those individuals jumped into action to make sure that those people that were traveling came home safely. So um, it is an added value. I mean, some people do prefer the, the online structure, and I think that's great because it provides that level of convenience. Um, but at the same time, having a travel agent at, uh, at, you know, available to help you and to keep an eye on things is, is also great because there is going to be a lot of navigating. There's going to be a lot of questions, and sometimes these travel professionals can understand the rules and the changes and communicate that to you so that you're not having to do that alone. What about those who are perhaps reluctant to book because they had such difficulty with refunds or changes over this past year and a half? What do you want to say to those listeners? You know, I think really what we're going to see right now is that some people are going to be really eager and will jump at the first opportunity. Some may be a bit more hesitant to travel, um, either because of the risks of potentially um, getting sick or having a situation when they're traveling, or they may just not feel comfortable based on their experiences. And I think it's going to take time. And I think that, you know, there is no single answer to that particular question in the, in the sense that people will go when they're comfortable. Some may choose a cross-border uh, shopping excursion in the near future. Some may choose a warmer climate. I think that, you know, really it's, it's, when you're comfortable to make sure that you're, that you're, you're taking care of yourself and making sure that you've taken the necessary precautions. That includes making sure you've got everything in motion from your passport to your travel insurance to make sure that you're fully protected each and every way so that you can have the best possible time wherever, wherever you go and for how long or however long you go. And is travel medical insurance the same across the board or does it change according to your provider? So, tra- so insurance does vary by provider. It also is specific in the sense that, you know, again, where you're going, how long you're going for, um, they, they will make sure that you have all the coverages that you need. So it really is valuable to contact um, your provider. Some, some people may have it as part of their benefits through their office. They may have certain levels of coverage they may want to add on. But it always is valuable to have that type of coverage available so that if you do run into a situation with your travel, if you run into a health situation, um, whatever it may be, while you're, while you're away, that you are fully protected and not paying out of pocket. And travel will not be the same as before, right? It won't. I think, you know, very much we're going to see, um, you know, great, greater, you know, uh, great, greater uh, uh, frequency of, of people wanting to, to make sure that they're safe, people um, um, taking greater precautions. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that we're going to see a lot of people excited to get back um, to, to their journeys. And um, gradually, we're going to see it return, even though it may have uh, a different look and feel. And we should pack our patients? Definitely pack patients. I think it's a learned experience for everyone, whether you are a, a service provider or you are a traveler. If listeners want more information, where do you suggest they begin their search? So for, for, uh, for Orion, you can visit oriontravelinsurance.ca, as well as you can check out caasco.com to get more information on the travel. Elliot Silverstein, Director of Government Relations for Orion Travel Insurance, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. The pandemic has changed how children and teens learn, play, and create. A new exhibit coming from the ROM will share some of those experiences. Jim Lang with that story. Well, our good friends at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum, have come up with something really cool as they specialize in arts and culture and New World archaeology. And the timing is perfect. It's called My Pandemic Story. And they want to hopefully release it in the fall of this year in 2021 to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by one of the curators for the ROM in New World archaeology, Justin Jennings. Justin, how are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's a pleasure, and I, I think with your in-depth education and background and research, you deal with ancient cultures and how they sort of, you know, itemized and, and kept a log of everything happening in their world. And considering what we've gone through the last year and a half, it's kind of appropriate we bring it to 2021 and do it ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we've been thrown through so many pandemics in our in, uh, in human history, right? So now we've got a new one. 
And, uh, you know, one thing I've done, of course, is look back, you know, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. And now we're right in the midst of one, but hopefully coming out of it and say, okay, well, how do we remember? How do we think through this? How do we move on is what we're trying to do at the museum. You know, once upon a time, you would see you know, etchings and paintings and drawings and words and walls and tablets, and that's how scientists like yourself and archaeologists would piece together the story. Now we have the new technology. How can people use the ROM to, as they say, hashtag my pandemic story, tell the story so we have a sort of, a, I guess, a guideline, a book to go through. We want to look back years later and see what really happened. Yeah, I mean, it used to be you only had a few artists, right? You had uh, uh, just a few voices that were telling these stories about what happened. But now we have, if anything, nowadays, too many voices, right? So <laughs> much information. And so we're going to try to do with, uh, with this show is we want to get, uh, you know, the voices of, of kids and teens and what they suffered through, what they felt during, uh, during these uh, long, long year and a half, and uh, put everything we can on display at the museum and give people a sense of uh, what we all went through. Now, when you talk art in 2021, Justin, what is it paintings? Is it um, visual, graphic? What kind of arts does that encompass for kids and teens listening and say, I'd like to do something to tell my story? Yeah, I mean, it's basically anything uh, that they, they think of as art. So we've gotten a lot of, of um, for example, we've got collages. We've got paintings, but we also have, uh, we have lots of videos. We have dances. We have musicians, poems. Anything that someone can think of that's art, we go out and we, um, you know, we want to hear them and then do their thing. Speaking with Justin Jennings from the Royal Ontario Museum, follow them, of course, on Twitter, at Rom Toronto, and he is part of a thing called My Pandemic Story they want to launch and release in the fall of 2021. And through your research and through all your history and education from Tufts University and UC Santa Barbara, go slugs, and the University of California, Santa Barbara, it, 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 we realize, and I know from what I've seen in documentaries, that mankind has documented what they've gone through in some sort of art. It's it's going back, what, thousands of years? Am I correct? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, as soon as we started living together in, uh, let's say, in the first cities, the first towns, we started getting lots and lots of diseases circulating. So things like uh, like the coronavirus have been around. They've been hitting us. And, uh, and, yeah, so we can certainly get a sense of what people went through. And uh, oftentimes, of course, they look back in the rearview mirror and, and things are a little bit different. And so... Uh, you know, how we categorize this, how we think about it, it's going to be very important for us, uh, you know, right now. And so we can look at the ways people did it, and we're going to try to do it, do it uh, one way there at the museum in terms of getting all those different voices and telling about all those different feelings that we experience. Get more details of their website and their Twitter feed, of course, at rom.on.ca. And, and as you talk about kids and teens will see and experience things differently than adults. It's one thing for me in middle age how I view it, but I have one daughter in grade 12, one in university, and they're, through their eyes, through their experience, it's a very different last year and a half, isn't it? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, what we, we, you know, we've all had our, our, uh, you know, hardships during this time, but I'm always moved by what I see. So, you know, people talking about, uh, you know, misgraduation or, or the friends that they can only see and not touch. I mean, it really does get you every time looking through a lot of this. But there's also a lot of positives, right, that come out. So people talking about, you know, walking their dogs or spending more time with their family. So, you know, we get at that, that swirl. But you're definitely right. Sometimes I, what we really like about these, this, this exhibit um, is that the kids sometimes give you the unvarnished truth, right? They'll go ahead and tell you what they really feel. Like you and I, maybe we're a little bit, uh, you know, we try to be a little, keep it all in, but they oftentimes let it out in ways that, uh, that we can say, okay, yeah, actually I'm feeling that. I was just maybe, uh, you know, hiding it a little bit. So I think it's going to, gonna, you know, be important for, for kids and teens to take a look at this stuff, but also for all of us to take a look and, and, and see what people went through. Man, Justin, I, I think about how this will unfold. and We'll see some happy stuff, fun stuff. We'll see some sad stuff. It really will be all range of emotions displayed in different forms of art to tell the story of the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's, it really is quite amazing. You'll, it's, you'll go into the show. Hopefully you'll be physically in the building by, you know, by the fall, be able to, to sit and look at a, instead of, a, you know, of, a, of someone you know, dancing through their feelings, someone else doing some spoken word, you'll see some paintings, you'll see sculpture, um, you know, and look at all sorts of issues that some of you may, 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 may have dealt with, otherwise you, you didn't. So, for example, we're finding identity is a big issue right now, what people are, which makes sense, right, especially a lot of teens are finding themselves, but now they're finding themselves 
in the COVID era, right, and wrestling through this oftentimes remotely. So we look at some of those issues that people are facing. So I'm really excited. It's going to be a great show, and I'm looking forward to, to, uh, to having this as something that hopefully, as I said, we can, look, we can start looking back on what just happened. And, uh, and the romp can be part of the conversation. Oh, absolutely. And I think about it, Justin, a lot of people, young and old, took the time to reflect and maybe try something new, try a new art or craft or skill that they never thought about. And they said, well, I have time. And they got into it. And that's that may be one of the glimmer of the silver linings to all of this. They took time to go, hey, I'm going to try woodworking or I'm going to try doing this. And they never thought I could do it before. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that. I, you know, there's one piece, for example, of someone that decided to do wire work. You know, oh. yeah, I had a lot of free time, as you said. I'm just going to start making these little stick figures, and I, I think she ended up making a uh, stick figure, basically, uh, you know, in, in in bars, right? So reflecting some of the sense of being trapped, but also, yeah, is that yeah, she's got time to kind of explore herself a little bit, so you know, and also, uh, you know, explore a whole new medium. So uh, it's exciting to see some of the great art coming out of these. Uh, these kids and teens. The hashtag My Pandemic Story. Learn more about it at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum Toronto. Be a part of it. Hopefully, fingers crossed, as you say, Justin, it opens in the fall. We can go through and, and experience what the youth and teens and children of the GTA have gone through throughout the pandemic. Thank you so much for your time and great work you're doing at the ROM. Thank you very much. When we come back, changing the construction industry stereotype. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The pandemic has put a spotlight on the growing impact women are having on the economy, particularly in non-traditional careers. Heather Seaman is next with how women are driving change. We're joined by Monica Kretschmer, founder and CEO of the Universal Women's Network and Women of Inspiration Awards, here to tell us about UWN's Women Driving Change campaign. Thank you for joining us, Monica. Thank you so much, Heather. It is so wonderful to speak with you this morning. Awesome. First, briefly tell us about the Universal Women's Network and what the mission is. So, Heather, our mission is to empower, connect, and inspire one billion women. Um, you know, the Universal Women's Network is a global platform uh, committed to advance gender equality, diversity, and inclusion. We strategically partner with the companies that are committed to EDI, and we recognize the women um, from diverse industries with Women of Inspiration Awards. Your new initiative, called Women Driving Change, aims to ensure gender inclusion in male-dominated industries. Tell us more. So, Heather, a great opportunity um, for really setting the stage, especially after, you know, coming out of the pandemic, um, where women faced probably the biggest barriers. And so, you know, 2021 for me was an opportunity to create an initiative for you know, that welcomed everybody to the conversation, uh, you know, united companies that were committed to diversity inclusion while representing the voice as of female leaders from diverse industries. So it made sense for me to create an initiative to engage the transportation industry um, and, and lead with the driving change um, across Canada. The campaign is being rolled out in a very unique way. Tell us about that. So the campaign was actually launched on International Women's Day on March 8th, and we have three graphics trucks um, fully wrapped, um, and this is the exciting piece, fully wrapped with the faces of our 100 Women of Inspiration book contributors. And, you know, I really felt compelled that coming through the pandemic, we really wanted to find a way of putting women front and center um, where they're seen, heard, and valued. And I couldn't think of a better way than wrapping uh, semi-trucks um, that are on the roadways. The discussion about diversity and inclusion is long overdue. And through this campaign, as you mentioned before, you've joined forces with companies that are committed to moving the conversation forward. What was it about these companies that made them the right fit to help to build awareness for this campaign? So initially it was, you know, I had some early adopters, um, you know, right in the very beginning. Um, Raymond James was one of the 
earliest adopters uh, as a strategic corporate partner. And they have a whole entire, you know, division dedicated to support the women within their organization. Um, and then on board with the, the graphics company, again, you know, these are companies that are not normally in the, um, you know, visible day-to-day. And I find that that's also something as well is that there's a lot of companies that have these great initiatives. They have these ideas. They want to get started, but they just don't have the presence outside of the company. So I found that by, you know, reaching out and contacting, you know, um, some key strategic partners, um, we can make that happen. And that certainly was the case with Turbo Graphics. Uh, they engaged, you know, um, several of their strategic partners um, in the trucking industry, and that's how it really started. I know you want to challenge other businesses and individuals to step up as well. How so? I love marketing, and I, like, as I said, I really do believe that it's everyone's role to play um, to support and champion for women and really to t- participate in the inclusive and diversity conversation. So we have everything from bumper stickers to merch line, which makes it, you know, so everybody can belong. Everybody has a piece of the action. But I also really want to challenge all of the companies um, that have an idea, that have a committee, that have, uh, you know, a full program to really be visible right now more than ever because that does really set the stage for attracting talent, for elevating your female leaders, um, for building that culture of diversity and inclusion that is really important right now because it is a conversation and it has to be more than a conversation. You have to be seen as taking action. Why are male allies so important in all of this? So, Heather, great question. I truly believe that um, men and women um, work well together and if course, with diversity and inclusion, you know, that's 50% of the population, right? In some areas and underserved industries, it's more. And so I do believe that by welcoming men to the conversation as our champions and support hers, we can move that needle and drive change. Anything else about the campaign that you'd like to mention? What I thought would be, a, you know, an open sooner in the year um, turned out to be a really great month, September, um, you know, when the roadshow kicks off in Vancouver on September 9th, going all the way through to Halifax and 10 cities along the way. But I think this is really great timing. Um, I think that, you know, as we move out through the pandemic, it's time to inspire hope. It's time to put women where they're in the driver's seat, where we're seen as driving that change and for companies to be those visible supporters. So I would just encourage, um, you know, uh, just participation. Where can listeners get more information about the campaign? So the best place to get the information, Heather, would be our website, uh, universalwomensnetwork.com. We really do encourage everyone to really participate, follow the journey. Um, of course, our graphics trucks are on the roadways now. The designated truck starts in Vancouver, September 9th, working its way right across Canada, and of course, making its way through um, Toronto, uh, the greater Toronto area. I believe the date is September 9th, uh, 17th in that area. But for sure, companies, um, if you are, if you have a diversity inclusion program, we really do encourage you to um, get involved, get in touch with us as we make our way as we're having live events and elevating female role models from diverse industries. Thanks again, Monica, for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Heather. It was great speaking with you. There is a critical shortage of labor in the construction industry. 100,000 well-paying construction jobs here in Ontario might not be filled over the next nine years. Now, these are jobs, in some cases, with an $80,000 a year starting salary. So what's the problem? Here to help us understand the issues and even offer some recommendations are two giants in the industry, Joseph Mancinelli, the Laborers International Union of North America, Leona, he is the International Vice President and Central and Regional Manager for this union, and also Matt Stainton, President of the Stainton Group and founder of SG Constructors. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the feed. Pleasure. Thank so, you. So, Joe, what, what are the problems? Why are these jobs going unfilled? Well, it's a, it's a complex uh, issue, um, you know, one where 
parents, of course, have uh, um, streamed their children towards academic um, uh, pursuits, you know, being lawyers and doctors, accountants, etc. And, uh, and of course, our education system doesn't really, um, um, you know, teach our children uh, at an early age or even in high school, quite frankly, to, um, you know, go into the trades and what, uh, what the trades can offer you. And then, of course, there is a public perception um, that, you know, the, the trades are uh, heavy work, and so I don't know if I really want to do that. It's dirty. Um, and, and so this is uh, an incorrect perception because, in fact, it's a wonderful career path for, for uh, a lot of young people that, quite frankly, uh, don't know what to do when they're in college or university. So, Matt, might there be then stereotypes surrounding construction jobs and construction workers, and how do we change that? And thank you. There, there definitely are stereotypes, um, and as Joe mentioned, the parents and, and teachers aren't you know, necessarily saying to people, oh, you want to be an estimator, or you want to be a superintendent, or you want to be an electrician. Uh, they are driving in, in other places, but you know, the media also plays a role in this. There are programs out there like Catch a Contractor, which tries to catch contractors doing things wrong. So it, it puts a stigma around that industry. There's there's Homes on Homes, where Mike Holmes does a great job correcting problems from previous contractors that have, have left homeowners, homeowners high and dry with, with bad renovations. So uh, it, it's it's been in the media, and, and there's not a great promotion of it. There, the industry is very, very high-tech. Um, but that is not understood by a lot of people. And I think the solution to this is really starting at a very young age. I did some work with the American General Contractors Association a number of years ago, and they did a study and they said that by grade two, kids did not know what they wanted to do for careers, but they knew what they didn't want to do, and that was construction. Interesting. So we have to start early. You know, there also is this misconception, this perception that it's a male-dominated industry. It, maybe that is the case right now. How do we change that? Mm, that that's a, an excellent question, and because you know that's a stereotype as well. And 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 we have a lot of women uh, entering the workforce in, in the construction sector. And I have to tell you that you know we keep on talking about uh, equity uh, for for women, but in the construction sector, especially. Um, in the unionized sector, we have contracts. Everybody makes the same money. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. And so that kind of solves that issue right off the bat. So it's a great industry for women um, to come into the uh, construction sector. And we have many going through our training center, and they do a great job. And, you know, the stereotype that only men can do construction work is absolute nonsense. You know, I, I, I point you to um, nursing and if people think nursing is an easy job, <laughs> they've got something else coming to them, especially uh, coming out of this pandemic. We know that the frontline workers did a lot of heavy lifting uh, in the last couple of years, and that is an industry that is dominated by women. And so if they can do that work, they can do construction. Matt, the philosophy at your organization, so Stainton Group and SG Constructors, is, quote, the business of construction is more than just about time and materials. So what is it about, Matt? It's, it's really about people at the end of the day. Um, when you build a project, it is, it is a massive team of people that need to come together. Um, and what we're really trying to work on is finding the best people, and, and the best people exist everywhere, whether they're um, women or new Canadians or Indigenous people. There, there's a, a wonderful opportunity for, for everybody in society to, to look at this if they're interested. Um, and what we're doing is we're starting very, as I said, starting very young, and we're actually partnering right now and supporting uh, a women's hockey team at a young girls' hockey team in Oakville, um, to try and introduce them and give them some more exposure to the industry in hopes that they will at least have a look and see if there's something that appeals to them. Joe, how do we get the education system to be on board and start as young as possible? You know, at, in recent years, uh, the education system uh, in Ontario has learned to embrace 
finance and banking and money matters for really young students, something so important when they grow up. How do we get the education system to think about introducing the construction industry and everything that it entails to our young sponge-like minds students? You know, this is a very important issue and, um, you know, one that, that all of us, Matt and myself and uh, uh, many of the construction associations have been talking to the provincial government and in particular um, to Minister Monty McNaughton about this issue. Very, very important we introduce um, construction, uh, the construction industry uh, in the school system. You know, decades ago, um, we used to have trade classes, uh, you know, electrical classes, woodworking classes in the high schools. And, and because of budgetary concerns, um, these were eliminated. And that was a huge mistake because it, that level of exposure exposed kids um, to the trades. And, and, and then they saw whether or not they had an aptitude for it or whether or not they liked it. And so we need to get back to that. And, 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 and really the onus is on the provincial government um, to introduce classes uh, in in the high school level, absolutely. But I think even beyond that, in, in the latter grades of grade school, you know, grade 6, grade 7, grade 8, uh, just to expose the kids to this is another career path that you might be looking at. And, 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 and that could open up some channels in these young people's minds, um, you know, for, for, for the future. And in most cases, straight out of school, you've got a job. And let's talk about that. The salary, starting salary in some cases, a whopping $80,000 a year. That is quite incredible. There are benefits as well. Tell me what the the world of a construction worker really is like. Matt, do you want me to handle that? Sure, yeah, please go ahead, Joe. Well, you know... uh, Eighty thousand is is an average. Um, you know, if you're working in certain sectors like the pipeline sector, uh, you're probably making a couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, a year. So, you know, the it depends on which sector you're working in. This is a wonderful career uh, for men and women um, to go into because it it allows you an opportunity for growth um, to advance. You know, to become a foreman, a superintendent, and have your own company. Uh, as well, but but it it offers an opportunity to work all the time. Keep in mind that you know we're just coming out of a pandemic, and construction workers worked right through the pandemic. And you know that was one of the few groups that that worked uh, long hours. You know, contributing to the economy, and, and unfortunately, probably didn't have too many places to spend their money when everything was shut down. But nevertheless, I mean, look at the impact. Um, that, you know, construction workers can make on the economy and on their families' lives. So very, very important for them to uh, uh, jump into this career. And so the message is clear to young people or to people thinking about moving into the construction industry, whatever their age, whatever their gender, what their culture, their whatever their background is, they are welcome to, to participate, to learn, to be a part of that world. I want to ask you, Matt, what was your first memory of of seeing something being built and what did it mean to you well i was uh, fortunate to have uh, a mother and, and father that were both teachers so they believed everything was a learning opportunity and uh, when i was very very young my mother would take me down and my younger brother who didn't have any interest in it but i would sit uh, for hours and uh, i guess it was babysitting for my mother I would uh, watch them build the CN Tower, uh, so much so that the workers got to, to know me. I was only about four or five years old, and the workers got to know me well enough that actually when before they raised that last piece, they let me try and put my name on it at five. I'm sure, sure it wasn't a, a full signature by any stretch, but that was my real first exposure to, to construction. And, and I always say when you see the hoardings on construction sites with the with the window openings in it, it's because everybody wants to see in. Everybody wants to see what's going on. If you go back to, you know, first toys for lots of kids, it's it's Tonka trucks, it's bulldozers, it's Lego. And that, that goes for both boys and girls. It's, uh, I think, you know, if you go back even a few years, Bob the Builder, we live with a Bob the Builder generation of kids that have an interest in this and, and we see that it occurs naturally. And unfortunately, with time, Unfortunately, it's discouraged by sometimes parents and sometimes teachers. 
or and, guide me counselors. And in your case, Matt, you had encouraging parents. And Joe, your family led by example, including your father. Tell me what his influence was over you. Uh, enormous influence. Um, you know, he was a, a mentor, worked for Leuna as well. Um, you know, he, he rose through the ranks as well back in the 1950s as an immigrant coming to Canada. Uh, he is a, a perfect example uh, of someone who came to Canada and, and, and built uh, a great life for, for himself and for his family. So he was, uh, I would say, the, the, the enormous influence on my life and the life of my family as well. Always liked uh, going with my father, even as a child, to visit, you know, job sites and see what was going on. I've always been fascinated um, that, you know, you can start with a raw piece of land and all of a sudden you see a building on it that's all shiny and new and built. And, you know, people have created this with their hands. And, you know, there's something very creative and artistic about the construction industry as well. So I've always been fascinated. And at 64, I still am fascinated by the whole thing. <laughs> You're young, by the way. So bottom line, you've offered some recommendations that you would put forward to the government and the industry, each of you. And we'll start with Matt. What's your strongest recommendation right now to any family, to a parent, to a child, to a student, to an individual at whatever age who thinks that the construction industry was not for them, that it should be? I think it's incumbent on the industry leaders to help educate the general public, um, help educate the teachers, the guidance counselors, the parents to understand what is out there. We as, a, as an industry need to do better. Uh, we need to show what this industry is about. And my advice to them is if you know somebody in construction and there are lots, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the industry in our province, uh, reach out to someone you know and ask some questions, and I think they will all be very surprised with what they learn. They will learn something new, and they will realize that maybe the stereotypes around our industry aren't necessarily so. And your strongest recommendation? Well, you know, I think that most parents are already experiencing their children going to college or university and then uh, either graduating or leaving uh, and, and doing something else. And, and in fact, m many university students finish getting their degree and then go to community college in order to uh, specialize in something as well. So a lot of parents are already experiencing this, that there's a, a shift that, you know, their children have or do um, at a certain point in their lives. And, you know, careers nowadays, I mean, a lot of young people change careers quite often. So what they should actually do, uh, parents should have an open mind when it comes to the construction industry and encourage um, their children, their sons and daughters, to at least give it a try. Um, that may be something that they be, might be interested in, and it's a great career path. And so, you know, the parents shouldn't be discouraged in, in, in doing that because it's a different world right now uh, it is not as heavy, the work, as it used to be because of technology and, and a lot of advancements in the construction industry, and, it, and there's a lot of room for advancement as well. Gentlemen, you had me at hello. <laughs> Joe Mancinelli, <laughs> Leuna, Matt Stainton, the Stainton Group, and SG Constructors, thank you both so much for joining us on the feed. Pleasure being with thank you, Anne. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.